everybody and welcome to the Smorgasbord. I'm Tom Shapira and with me as always... Hello, I'm Sean Edry coming to you live from the darkest timeline. Yeah, so this is the comic book podcast brought to you by the fine folks at Seekwartz, the best online and unusual source for comic books, news, reviews and critique. This podcast is one week late because of various subjects, one of them being indeed that we are in the darkest timelines and I think we shall speak no more of that in, no this, in this podcast at least. <laughs> I'm still somewhere between denial and anger, so comics. Let's talk Comic. about comics. Let's, let's, before we jump straight to the news, we should mention that Seekward is on Patreon, right? Yes, support smart criticism in comics, now more than ever. <laughs> so, news items. Right off the top, I have like this question because I'm looking at this story and not entirely sure what's going on. So, after leaving the outhouse... Uh, Jude Terror, who is a comics pundit that I occasionally enjoy, made the baffling decision of joining Bleeding Cool. This is not a hoax, not an imaginary story. He started writing for them on a regular basis. And, Tom, I tell you, I honestly don't understand what this is, because immediately after he was hired, Rich Johnson wrote this screed about how Terror basically, well terrorized him for years, mocking him because of his own nonsense, and now he works for Bleeding Cool. Other writers at Bleeding Cool apparently took issue with Terror's style and his very abrasive and direct tone. And it's just been nonstop mayhem on that website ever since this happened. And I don't understand, is this practi- Is this a practical joke? Is it trolling? Well, is I- it marketing? Te- terror, is terror only knows. My best guess is that Seeing how terrible is the new Civil War comic comic event, <laughs> we should mention we are... Oh, God, this is going to be embarrassing. The new Civil War comic event, which is even worse than the previous Civil War comic event, Surprising decided no to give us an actual entertaining uh, Civil War within comic, and we see Bleeding Cool, you know, tear themselves <laughs> apart, beta lines are drawn, specials will be published, $5 per news update, I guess. Uh, uh, because... Juter, as long as he wrote for the Howdows, he had many, many barbs aimed at Rich Johnson. Yeah. And now he was hired, assumingly by the people who actually finance Leading Cool. Because, yeah, while Johnson is the lead editor and the leading voice and the founder of Leading Cool, he's not the owner. I think someone at Avatar Press owns the website, you know, pays for the hosting and such. So this is real. So they, so, th- so they can hire, yeah, they can decide to hire whomever they want. But yeah, it's such a strange idea. It's Why would you do that? It doesn't even, like, I can understand the idea of hiring someone who's very outspoken and very detailed in his criticism of the industry, especially for a website like Bleeding Cool. Like, it makes sense on that level. Yeah, but it's a different type of outspoken because... During Terror's time, the outhouse made a point of not only not caring what the big companies thought about it, but antagonizing them. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, that was the point of writing an article or a mocking piece. And I think just about every big publisher, certainly Marvel and DC, didn't send them comps, didn't didn't no. give them interviews. You know, he, he made it into a point. And Bleeding Cool, while... Spending a lot of time, you know, annoying Marvel and DC by publishing stories before their time or whatever, you know, makes the, a big comic writer angry. They're still working a lot of time in sync with the big comic companies. You know, th- they're part of 
for for good or bad the marketing arm right you want to publish yeah. a story you want to hype something you let's slip to bleeding cool this new character will die in issue something yeah. or other well there's always been sort of a very ambivalent relationship between the big two and bleeding cool specifically like if you listen to someone like dan slot which you shouldn't because dan slot's an idiot but dan slot has always said you know oh rich johnson and bleeding cool are just the worst things in the world and we work so hard on these twists and you ruin them but there has always been also sort of like an implicit assumption that disney and warner brothers leak stuff to bleeding cool on purpose well just to generate i don't think somebody high up at warner or i don't know disney's like oh yeah that rich johnson i don't know because because pr you would assume would be the function of the parent company too if it's public relations and news and stuff like that so there's always been sort of like the implicit assumption that whoever these sources are that are constantly leaking to rich johnston Marvel know who they are and DC know who they are and they just sort of work with them. Yeah, but like you said, it's so weird because if it's, if it's planned, this is Andy Kaufman-esque. Because, <laughs> because the seeds for, you know, the, the feud between Terror and Johnson have been seeded over years of publishing. Yeah. And, and, and now he's hired and he's writing for them. And it's not because of, his, of the name value of Jude Terror. Because A, because, well, it's a fake name. And B, because... You don't, when you look, go into Bleeding Cool, you don't actually see who publishes a piece until you actually enter the piece. You don't see the name yeah. of the writer and the byline until you actually click. Now, I, and I assume you, if you ever read Bleeding Cool, can tell a Juter headline from the get-go. Well, I could tell a Juter headline from the outhouse. Yeah. That was like, well, you know, he, he has so, a very distinct Yeah, style. so it's, it's obvious even in, uh, in Bleeding Cool. But other than that, why... You know, I, I get why he wants to because, you know, somebody, somebody's paying him, I guess, you know, good well, for him. Well, and, he no, doesn't seem, and he doesn't seem like he's being censored at all. He well, can me, do whatever he wants. Let me be specific on that point then, because I can understand why Terror would want it. The Outhouse has its solid readership and all that, but they're not A-tier. They're not like a site that everybody visits. I can understand why Terror would agree to work for Bleeding Cool. What confuses the hell out of me is the notion that, because there is no way that Bleeding Cool's owner, whoever it is, did not know that Terror has a history with Johnston. And that if you put these two on the same team, they are going to be squabbling. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. Not with uh, Johnston, but another writer for Bleeding Cool sort of took issue with... Terror's somewhat uh, characteristic eulogy for um, Leonard Cohen. Le- what, the day after Leonard Cohen, I think even the same day, he published no, I, like a semi-mocking piece about uh, the singer behind one of Watchmen's well, worst uh, sex scene died. No, no, and, no. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Let's let's be accurate here. No, no. But the, the tone itself was not mocking Leonard. No, no, Cohen. not mocking Leonard Cohen. It was mocking. The, the sort of comic book website who would take every single thing and, that happened in the world and try to find, you know, the connection, however small and unrelated it is to comic. Like, exactly. If when Robert Redford retired from gaming, there was the smoking scene, uh, acting, <laughs> acting, you know, Captain America actor. And, and you know, it's, it's that kind of thing. It's, well, if something happened in the world, how can we talk about it in a way that interests our readers? It's, it's like the general. Uh, news rule where 
you know, something that happens to a local man is 10 times more important than something happened to yeah. a, similar, a similar nationality man who's outside of our jurisdiction. It's exactly. similar to someone from, you know, 100 people from a different country. So, yeah, and Terror was very clearly writing that piece in, like, it was very tongue-in-cheek and very obviously so, but another one of the writers of Bleeding Cool ended up writing this huge editorial about how, oh, you know, I find it so shameful that... Jude Terror, who was recently hired, would speak that way about an American icon. Basically went on like this really long-winded screed for no apparent reason that I could see. And it's just like, I'm reading this and it's like, are you guys actually squabbling in your own... On your own website, you're just like airing all the dirty laundry and all the disagreements I, openly. I, I don't, it's it's like the, it's like it's like wrestling, right? Which is related to a comic Oof. we will review later. When when is the feuding, you know, part of the game, and when is it? And when is it actually people, you know, being angry at each other? I'll be I, damned if I know, but yeah. I, I'll tell you this much: I do find it rather entertaining because again, more you know, entertaining than the actual civil war. Yeah, because you know, terror is someone. I appreciate, like, I don't consider this move to to Bleeding Cool to be, like, selling out or whatever. It's just like, no, he's just going to keep doing what he's always been doing. And I've always enjoyed the way that he does those things. Because, quite frankly, uh, the industry could use the occasional kick in the balls. I'm not opposed to that. Uh, I, I just find the drama hilarious because, you know, Rich Johnson is so used to feuding with people outside of Bleeding Cool. And now the problems are starting in his own house. The uh, feuding is coming from within the house. It's like the a horror is coming movie. From it's like a horror movie, right? <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, okay, so I've got a bit of TV and movie news that we can go through, just yeah, to sort of okay. talk about the general uh, thing. So first of all, Marvel recently announced that the Inhumans movie is officially canceled. What they're doing is they're converting it to a TV show that'll start airing in 2017 at ABC. Now, they haven't said that this show will be replacing Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., but it's not hard to sort of draw that conclusion because Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., well, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. It's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. I haven't watched it since season one, so You're missing nothing. Uh, uh, Well, this sort of connects to, to the next item, which is that you know, speaking of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., um, there has been talk of a possible Ghost Rider spinoff off the strength of Gabriel Luna's performance as Robbie Reyes. And see, this was the reason why I sort of tried to tune back into Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. for Ghost Rider. But that show is aggressively stupid. How works Ghost Rider on a TV budget? You know, he actually looks pretty amazing. Hmm. You should look up the clips on YouTube. They figured out because when they when Nick Cage did it, it looked super fake, the whole burning skull thing. But they uh, as opposed to the realistical burning skull on a stunt driver. Well, listen, there's good CGI and there's fake CGI, right? Mm, like yeah. never well, the twain shall meet. Well, because you said uh, Agents of Shield is aggressively stupid. If there is a if there is a style needed for a good Ghost Rider, you know, series. It's not. It's not refined and intelligent. You want. You want well, to be a bit of aggressively stupid when your show is called Ghost Rider, and not on that level. Like there's a mm. difference between embracing the sort of ridiculousness of a plot and playing it straight. Like if you think about it, almost any concept that Marvel has put out could have been played for camp value, right? But at the same time, some characters are more appropriate for that tone, and some aren't. And I think that you could do. 
a ghostwriter series, hopefully with better writers, right? And and take it in a slightly different direction. Because the problem with... When I say that Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is aggressively stupid, I don't mean stupid in terms of tone. I mean stupid in terms of this plot makes no sense. And did he really just say that line of dialogue because, oh my god, are you kidding me? So the Inhumans already exist in the TV show, right? They've seeded them like... Yeah. By the end of season one or something, I think, no? Or by at the, the beginning of season two? It was Season two was basically about establishing the Inhumans and the protagonist, who is not Coulson, the, uh, what's her name? Uh, Sky? Sky. Well, Sky, now she turned out to be J- Daisy Johnson, who's Quake. Uh, so she turned out to be an Inhuman herself, but they haven't introduced the canonical Inhumans. You the, know, the, uh, the royal family. Black Bolt, Medusa, Lockjaw, etc. I'm guessing that's what the show is for. Why not? You could sell so many lockjaw puppets. You really could, but I think the problem is, and this I think is something that they figured out like fairly recently, which is they've been pushing for the Inhumans to gain in popularity for a very long time. The show didn't achieve this because, you know, when you're dealing with the Inhumans in practical terms, you can't, you know, the the the, the budget just wasn't up for having like... I don't know, Medusa and her hair or a crystal with the fire and the ice and all that stuff. None of that. So in humans and in the comics as well have not really caught on since they tried oh, the Oh, in the comic, shift. not at all. And yeah. We'll, we'll take a, a bit to the comic side since I don't care about the TV show and I don't okay. care a bit about the comics. You know, Marvel is doing good work in making me not care about comics, but I still <laughs> care a bit. Um, Marvel have tried to push the Inhuman comics... For a long, long time, I uh, four years now at least, as like the replacement X Men, right? Yeah. Ever Whenever since... we have a new character, it's gonna be a new and a new man, and yeah. it's gonna be related to a whole shenanigan and crossover. And they've and now they already announced that their post uh, Civil War two crossover is in humans versus X Men, right? And they've already announced after that that there's gonna be the Revolution. Yeah, Re- Revolution with an X because you know resurrection, not revolution, resurrection. Resurrection, sorry. It's okay. Uh, so we basically know that the X-Men are going to be okay. And and uh, for a lot of time, the assumption was the X-Men are going to win simply because they've re- they're already announced there isn't going to be an Inhumans movie. So now Marvel is slowly pushing back, you know, bring, bring the humans back into the fold and letting the X-Men take their natural place as a more successful franchise. But now that the TV division have announced, no, 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 we really want to go with the Inhuman things. I some, somewhere imagine like a very panicked Marvel editor calling all the writers and artists and saying, well, that ending you did where the X-Men win, change no, that no, now. No. Like, change no, actually, it now. So I, I completely disagree with that. And, and mm-hmm. here's why. I think that Marvel's problem here, it was very clear what they tried to do, right? The story had been going on for years and years and years that they were deliberately downplaying the X-Men in order to continue with the property that they actually owned, which is the Inhumans, and that the, the audience was not responding to this. But the thing is, if Marvel had really been committed to the idea that they would not be getting the X-Men right back at any point, they would have just canceled the X-Men, same as they did with the Fantastic Four. Like, they would have just stopped publication of the line and wait for the clock to tick over and for the rights to revert when or if that ever happened, right? They could have done that. They could have committed. I think part of the reason the Inhumans push has failed is because they're being posited as a replacement for or an alternative to something that still exists. 
New, we just found out like this, this resurrection initiative that they're talking about. They're doing solo books for Jean Grey and Iceman. They're doing, uh, uh, new titles. They're bringing in new creative teams. This is still a line that may be diminished, but it is continuing to see the light of day. It is still being published. So naturally, why would you go for brand X if you have the original? Ooh, I see what I did there. That was mm-hmm. unintentional, but. Like, why would you settle for the imitation X-Men if the X-Men are still available? Like, if Mar- if Marvel had decided in the wake of canceling Fantastic Four to do, like, a new family super team that was based on them, that was meant to replace them, it would have worked. Because there would, no- there would be no Fantastic Four for people to prefer. Here, it's like, okay, you may have marginalized the X-Men to the point where they're no, no longer on Earth. That's how far you've pushed them out of the Marvel Universe. But they're still there. And the people who will continue to embrace them, and, you know, new movies are coming out, etc. So the fact that they're still present makes it sort of self-sabotaging in a way. And that's why I think this whole, you know, there was never a possibility that the X-Men would lose in Inhuman versus X-Men. There was never an idea that they would, that they rewrote the ending so the Inhumans would lose. I think it's more... No, not, you know, not literally rewriting, but Marvel has done a tremendous job, well, not a tremendous, a terrible job in universe <laughs> of, of trying to literally write the X-Men out and make, the whole point of the Inhuman Terrigan Mist being literally something that makes mutants unable to, what, have children, develop powers, what was um, it? Well, it changes from Rebirth? book to book. No, it yeah. changes from book to book. Sometimes it means they're sterile, sometimes it means it's toxic and it's actually poisoning them. It depends on who you ask. So they're they're basically telling the readers, you know, this the new hotness, you know, the inhumans, and nobody cares. The biggest selling inhuman book is in like under twenty thousand readers, I think, right now. Yeah, because and, and they, you know, they've pushed it and they've pushed it and they put big name writers and big name artists and they've put them in crossover and in every single Avengers book, there's an inhuman and nobody cares. The French, the inhuman franchise in comic goes nowhere. But that's what I'm saying. The reason it's failing, or at least one of the major reasons it's failing, is because the X-Men are still being published. If this had been a case where there actually weren't any X-Men books, those readers would have to go somewhere, right? I, I don't think so, because if you're, a, if you're a brand follower, you care about the brand. You don't, you don't simply accept that, well, now you have the same thing, only why? Marvel zombies, though, listen, yeah, they've know. supported weirder decisions made by the higher-ups, right? I don't think We're so. not no, talking... If, if DC canceled Batman and told everybody, you're reading Robin now, well, some of them would, but most of them would be like, no, I'm, I'm here for Batman. Remember Nightfall? That I happened. Do. That happened, Tom. It, um... it was a Batman. Yeah. This is not... If, if, if the, what you're describing is if they would simply call the humans the X-Men now. No, what I'm saying is... We are the new X-Men with an E-X instead of, instead of I, just an X. But I think that's the problem. I think that they tried to push the Inhumans diegetically, like on the level of the story itself. They tried to push the Inhumans as following the same narrative technique and themes of, you know, a world that hates and fears them, all of that. They basically really did try to push the Inhumans into the X-Men mold. It didn't work because the X-Men mold was still taken. You could still be reading all new X-Men or Uncanny X-Men or all the other X-Men books or all new Wolverine. And, you know, these books were still seeing publication. So how do you want to, how would you expect readers to embrace the Inhumans as sort of 
the the analog for mutants if the original is still available. In the same token that like I I honestly do think that a big part of the success of Guardians of the Galaxy now going forward is attributed in no small part to the fact that without the Fantastic Four, you don't really have a lot of other characters that are running around, you know, exploring space and having crazy science fiction adventures. Didn't you, Bendis write them for like two years just sitting on the edge of Earth doing nothing? Well, Bendis, all of Bendis' books have, you know, people doing nothing. But look at the, like a lot of the spinoffs were successful for that reason, right? That they go off and they have these crazy science fiction the, adventures. The spin-offs don't sell that well. I think the only one that, you know... They manage... sell about... No, I think they sell about the same level collectively as the Fantastic Four. Well, the Fantastic Four during its last few years yeah. sold nothing all, you know? Exactly, but... One but of the reasons it got cancelled is because the sales weren't there. But that's exactly what I'm saying. Like, the Fantastic Four addressed a specific gap in Marvel's publishing schedule, like a, a kind of story that no other books were telling. And Guardians has, to some extent, taken over that slot now that they're gone. You can't say the same for X-Men and Inhumans because they're both trying to play... Like, mm. if you read Ms. Marvel... Like, you read Ms. Marvel originally, right? Yeah, the, the, first, first volume. the first okay. uh, volume. If you had read that volume and it, that book had been published five years ago, she would have been a mutant. Yeah. And But the thing is, her being an Inhuman doesn't contribute anything because people know that she would have been a mutant otherwise no like it the, the human angle just complicated thing because yeah. it's not just there are good there are good inhumans and bad inhumans you have the royal family and you and you have the creek connections and you have the very jerk kirby-esque backstory which is not is completely different yeah and it's a lot harder to mm. translate that like across uh adaptations when you're trying to make that case, so, so let's let's go back to the TV yeah, angle. Well, if, if they're doing uh, TV in humans from yeah. the same studio, I don't know, creative team behind mm-hmm. Agents Field, would you bother? Hell no. Well, there. Hell you go. no, 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 no. Look, in theory, you could do an Inhumans movie, or sorry, an Inhumans TV show on ABC that starts fresh and gets rid of all this Agent of Shield nonsense. Because let's not forget, they've already failed to launch one spinoff. Marvel's Most Wanted did not end up happening. So when we talk about it in those terms, we have to keep in mind that there needs to be some kind of recalculation or the, reconfiguration. The ground is poison. Exactly. You need to be able to start fresh. You have to have good writers. You have to commit to having some kind of budget because obviously I know ABC doesn't want to spend money on these shows. You can tell by the special effects, but you kind of have to. You kind of like it. The uh, one advantage that the budget would have given an Inhumans movie would have been that they could have done like a Tillin, right? The, the city that's floating or the city on the moon that's populated by all these weird creatures, you could do that with a film budget. With a TV budget that you need to find some way around it. You just have to, because otherwise no one is going to tune into this crap. Mm. And the X-Men film line is coming to an end. Like after Logan there, Brian Singer has made noises about he wants to do a 90s X-Men movie. I don't think anybody actually believes that that could happen. You know, I don't think that that's a possibility. Can't the chronology of the X-Men movies be any more stupid? Well, we talked about that last episode. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the answer to your question is yes, it could be a lot more stupid. But I guess mm. we'll find out what happens when uh, Logan comes out. Other uh, movie news, by the way. Uh, sh- well, since we've talked about Marvel movies, you want to talk about Strange? 
I haven't seen it yet. Have you? I have seen Doctor Strange. And Tell us about Doctor we Strange. We just said Doctor Strange came out, made a lot of money. It's not the most successful of Marvel movies, meanwhile, but it is one of the most successful of the number one, like of the origin story starring a single character. Uh-huh. Higher than Captain America and such. Higher than the first Thor. My general review of that, it's, you know, it looks it looks good in parts. There are some very nice special effects moments, but the plot is so rote and generic and like A to B to C to D, then that it's it's fine popcorn time, but not nothing more than that. Immediately forgettable, um, other than the effects. Mm. See, I, I I can understand that because it, and I do think that's kind of a miscalculation on Marvel's part that they're in phase three and still telling origin stories. Like the basic no, it's not the problem of it being an origin story, it's the problem of it being a boring standard. You know, if you open up your Microsoft Office and you do Control-Alt-F7, you get, oh, it seems that you are trying to write a generic origin story. Please insert name and or the quest destination here and the program will do it for you. It's right. just like that. Right, but you can attribute that to the fact that, like, if you look at the source material, all of those origins do pretty much follow the same lines. Yeah, but I even mean, in the comic, one one of the things made the original Doctor Strange comic interesting was the way that it was so weird, you know, for its... Forget, forget about today, for its time. It was down and out bizarre, all the cosmic universes and strange colors and, psych, and psychedelic. And here, all the oddness is... Shifted to like 20 minutes of, again, very impressive special effects. But other than that, it's just so normal. How was the cast? Yeah, I think it was good. I, Benedict Cumberbatch was okay. Uh, the guy who played Baron Mortar. I'm sorry, I cannot remember his name. Uh, uh, Chiwetel Ejiofor. Yeah, he was good. And they did it. The, one of the most interesting things about the movie, one of the few interesting things, was the fact that he was played as sympathetic throughout the whole thing. Uh-huh. Uh, n- not to spoil or anything, but you do get a more non-burn mortar. He's not the bad guy. You know, you have a different guy who's like the heavy that Strange and Co. have to fight. Right. And Tilda Swinton was excellent because she's Tilda Swinton. Uh, yeah. But, I don't think there yeah. was any doubt that she would nail that part. Uh, Amy Adams was... I think Amy Adams was the love interest, but... Rachel McAdams. Love, mm-hmm. uh, Rachel McAdams. See, the love interest character was so forgettable. <laughs> and there is nothing there. She's literally there um, for them to say, look, he has a love interest. He's a straight guy. Why did they do that? Could, because, because they're afraid somebody would think they have a gay character in their universe. Who would think that Doctor Strange is gay based on what? Well, if he's not kissing a human woman, Sean, he might somehow be... Because there's what? literally no reason for it to be there, for the romance angle to no. be there. Other than the fact that, well... In your major Hollywood movie, the hero has to have a romance with a female human woman. Ugh. It's, 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 it's not horrible. It's just pointless. It is pointless. I agree with you on that. Like, I haven't seen it yet. I'm going to see it next week. But, like, what? even based on that description, uh, geez, do we really have to do that again? But I guess that's... Well, yeah. You know. everything, everything old is older still. Mm. So, some of the, there's something that... Um, okay. So, sticking with Marvel for a second... And mm-hmm. transitions from film to TV. Big Hero 6 is getting a Disney TV sequel series. A cartoon, I assume. Uh, a ba- sort of the same style as the show. Yeah, yeah. As a, as so, a so film. It's like a cartoon. It's not a live-acting Big Hero Oh, God, 6. no. No, 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 no. Nobody... Well, it's, it's Disney. They do have, you know, live-action. Yes, but nobody needs that. 
Nobody well, needs that. We, we can stick with what we've got. Um, I, I think nobody needs the cartoon either. I mean, the Disney's mm. marketing department needs it, and well, I'm no. sure it will give them a lot of money, but these Let me, cartoons based on a movie, they're not very memorable, are they? They don't tend to be, but I will say this. like In terms of necessity, I really, really enjoyed Big Hero 6. I did. It was one of the very few quote-unquote kids' movies that came out like under the Disney umbrella that I thought were absolutely really? I, fantastic. I, I, I found it forgettable. I mean, it, again, okay. like Doctor Strange, I thought it was, you know, I, I saw it. It was okay. There are some nice moments, but I went out and, and erased from my mind. Fair enough. No, it, it did stick with me, and I did enjoy it tremendously. So the prospect of getting a sequel series that would hopefully live up to that level appeals to me. I am concerned that, you know, like you said, it does tend to be the case where Disney adapt sequel series to, from films to TV that it doesn't usually go well. But I'll be willing to at least check out the first couple of episodes because I really did love that show. And, and most of the voice actors are coming back, so, you know, there's some continuity there at least. Uh, the Ghost in the Shell full trailer finally came out. Yeah. It is very much aping the trailer and scenes from the Ghost in the Shell movie. Mm-hmm. And it was very interesting seeing online... The way people respond to it. Oh, it's great. It's just like the original. When I'm sitting there thinking, it's not at all like the comic. Because when I'm thinking the original, being a comic nerd, I'm thinking about the manga. And, you know, the movie supplanted the manga entirely in, in public in public imagination. I've, I've started reading the manga recently. That happens a lot with, with, I think, with very popular anime in the West. In the West specifically. Have you seen Ghost in the Shell? The, the no. movie? No. Oh, okay. The movie is like it's very dark and dour and philosophical and, you know, people are brooding and talking. And I love this movie, but, you know, people are brooding and talking seriously. And Mm. the manga is the exact same plot, the exact same characters, but the tone is much more like comedic and and odd and out there. And there are nude scenes and sex scenes and stuff blowing up. And, and, And everybody who's like speaking in harsh tones in the movie is like, Telling jokes and and then making and making bad puns and doing that manga thing where you know your face blows up or something like that. Uh huh. So it's it's the exact same story, but the tones is so different, and the tone of the of the movie became so dominant that the the new Americanized movie is aping that instead of the manga. So that was just interesting to me because everything else about the trailer is boring. Well, it's interesting. I do notice that like when it does tend to be the case. When Western audiences respond to specific anime or specific Japanese like animated films, they tend to prefer that almost to the manga. Like I'm thinking here, for example, Dragon Ball Z to this day, like people get surprised when you tell them there's a manga for that because they just assume it's the show, right? And they're or, always talking about the Dragon Ball Z, not the original Dragon Ball series, right? Or you have the uh, what was it called? Um... There was another one that had that like exact same problem. One Piece, Naruto, Full Metal your, Alchemist. Take your pick, right? I'm I'm assuming like all of it is is just at some point well, there's a manga for practically anything. Well, TV show is more popular than comic. That's not news. Yeah, but here the, in in many many a manga to TV show adaptation, they're trying to stick as close as possible. And here the original, I'm saying the original movie because if, in case you don't know. After the original movie, there was A, a sequel, then there was a TV show, 
that's set in a completely different well not a completely different in a different it's a different take on the same theme and characters so the TV show was called uh, Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex uh-huh and then the TV show had its own sequel movie and like two years ago they did another not a TV show like a series of uh, one-shot DVDs of like short one-hour movies four four of them that were in their own alternate take. I just want to point out that 20 minutes ago you were complaining about continuity in X-Men films. Well, no, I just want no to but out. here it's easy because they're saying, <laughs> no, because every take is different. Every take is like, well, this is just, this is a completely different take on that same concept. They're not saying you have to watch Standalone Complex to understand Ghost in the Shell Arise. They are completely different and you can watch one without watching the other. Do you think that that affects the way that people receive these films well, in it's, that it's, it's a very japanese thing to do right because in american comic the thing is you just keep doing the same thing uh as a continuation in american superhero comics you're always trying to say well this is related to that in order to say to the audience you know this matters while in the japanese version once you do something you can you can later do it again saying this is a different take so you have mm-hmm. full metal alchemist which was a very popular tv show and when it was over, they waited a few years and they did it again, like Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood, which is oh, based yeah. on the I, same I know source that I've material. Seen, I know that I've seen at least four or five different iterations of Death Note, like live action and film. Yeah, now back to the movie, to the, yeah. the American movie, starring Scarlett Johansson, by the way. I don't know, we, we should have said that, I don't... Well, the, we know, the, the thing about the movie is, yeah, it apes a lot of the of, a lot of the visuals from the Ghost in the Shell movie very well, and you know it looks pretty, but it's so it's a shallow kind of pretty. It's like, yes, we now have enough special effects, we now have enough CGI to try and come as close as possible to something that was done pretty well, I'd say, in animation 25, 20 years ago. No, it's the last Airbender it's, problem, it's, right? Uh, what well, it's. There is no point, and the yeah. the things that they do add, the things that seems to be their own take on the subject are so boring, you know, all of the lines in the movie, all of the spoken lines are just like, you know, this is major, we have a problem, they've taken it from you, they've stolen your secret. It came from like a generic... Uh, Hollywood randomizer line. Oh my god, like, that is straight pu- out of the dialogue generator. Push a button, say a cliche. Right? And yeah. I, I like Scarlett Johansson. Scarlett Johansson, you know, she she picks a lot of interesting projects. You know, she does very straightforward action stuff, but she also does stuff like uh, Under the Skin or Her. Yeah. And you, you already, if you want your take on Ghost in the Shell starring Scarlett Johansson, just watch Her again. It's basically, that's the story. Pretty much. Yeah. Uh, speaking of adaptations. Yeah. This is potentially exciting news. A film trilogy adaptation of Bone mm. is finally moving forward under Warner Brothers with director Mark Osborne now attached. Uh, Osborne's reputation is based <laughs> on the fact that he directed the first Kung Fu Panda, which I thought was pretty good. Yeah, I like Kung Fu uh, yeah. Panda. Now, he's also co-writing the script for the Bone movie with Adam Klein, who I'm not familiar with, but the name rings a bell. Um, now this sort of makes sense to me because I was when they first announced that they were doing a film adaptation of Bone, I was like, "Oh God, here we go." They've been talking about doing a Bone movie for like ten years now, Sean. Yeah, but I can also see why that would not necessarily be a good idea because Bone, much like 
you know, I'll make the comparison. Much like Lord of the Rings, Bone has a very, very specific feel and tone and style that I can only imagine is very, very difficult to replicate, especially if you're doing it live action, which I'll just say up front, they're, nobody needs live action Bone. They're not doing it live action, though. If you, if you hire someone like Mark Osborne, you're yeah. doing it animation. Uh, I would hope that it's CGI. Obviously and hopefully, uh, a live I action would hope Bone. That it's CGI. I, I just, mean, live just action. thinking about them, it's Ooh. disgusting. Ooh, just like... It, the what design would they do? is not meant for live action. Not at all. I mean, the whole point of the Bone character specifically, like the three Bones, is that they're sort of like Animaniacs in that sense. Like, who would want to see live action Wacko, Yakko, and Dot? No, not at all. See, well, I can think saying, of some people who would. You're saying would, that somewhere but... in Hollywood, somebody is doing a lot of cocaine and thinking. Ooh, no, we don't need it. See, people who, who do that much cocaine will uh, just OD and die. My, my <laughs> point of contrition, yeah. other than the fact that, you know, Mark Osborne is fine, and I'm not the world's biggest Osborne fan, I'm not the, I'm not the world's biggest Bone fan, but once you start with the, it's going to be an epic trilogy from the get-go, I, I, I groan because, you know, make one movie, see if it works. Well, no, hang on. No, no because, is... because, because, wait, wait, let me finish. If you start saying, or in, in modern Hollywood, if you're saying we're going to make a trilogy or a film series or whatever, a giant universe, you're basically saying the first movie is meaningless. The way they're doing these movies now, if they start thinking about it in terms of trilogies from the get-go, the first movie is always going to be just boring setup and introduction and, and a whole bunch of nothing. Ever since Lord of the Rings, which I like the Lord of the Rings trilogy, but it's kind of ruined Hollywood and the idea that Yes, yes, we we can we can always make it a series and make it longer and do sequels and and you know and people will come see them because they saw the first one and they want to see the next one. But the actual movies, you know, the actual single movie outside of the context of the trilogy mm. is becoming this tower and born. I'm thinking. Uh, uh, the Pirates of the Caribbean, where the first movie was great because they were aiming to do just a solo pirate movie, right? But once they've announced they're doing the two the two sequels, you know, back to back, and they're, they're going to be part of a series, well, the second Pirates of the Caribbean movie was terrible because it was just set up for the third movie. It all was like, here's the stuff that's going to happen in the third movie, and then the third movie started by undoing everything that happened in the second movie. It was well, ridiculous to watch. While a lot of that is generally true, though, I would point out that two, two things. First of all, when you talk about Bone as a series, this is not something that you could do in one film. Well, no, I'm not, you, you don't would have to do have the to, whole saga, but the, you, no, you but can't but then do, like, if you're the first two story arcs in a but movie. no, no, the this is exactly the thing. The structure of Bone, like in terms of its plot, is that everything is interconnected. There would be no point of you doing the first two trades, say, of Bone as a standalone movie because it doesn't stand alone. Because the whole point of you know, like that that first arc ends with the Great Cow Race, right? Yes. But the Great Cow Race is just a way to introduce um, what's her name, the Hooded One. Yes. Right? So you you could not successfully market this film as being completely standalone because otherwise if you take that element out of it where it's part of a larger story, then it just becomes like this very mundane thing. It's about a bunch of bones who are lost in a valley and they visit Grandma Ben and they raise cows. And and it doesn't have any meaning. 
I can under, like, I agree with you that in general, the trilogy structure and the shared universe structure is, a, you know, it's Hollywood's eyes being way, 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 way bigger than their stomach, so to speak. You know, it, their reach is far exceeding their grasp. But with Bones specifically, I can see the argument for splitting it into a, into three films because you would need three films in order to tell well, but the if you, story. If you go by that route, even three films won't be enough. This is a 55. No. This is a 55 issue series and but, this is not, you know, plotless 55 issues. A lot of stuff happens in Bones. So if you're saying, well, you're going to need the time to tell the, to tell the story properly, you're going to need, you, you're no, gonna that's need not six true. movies. That's not true, Tom. Look, if you look at what actually happens like in terms of the... Of the plot from the beginning to the end, right? There's a very clear way. And I think, like, it's hard for me to imagine that Jeff Smith didn't design it this way, right? You have the first arc, which is basically the, you know, the whole thing with Grandma Ben and Rose and, and Thorn and everything that happens in that village, right? The second part of that is when they go up to fight the Hooded One on the mountain and there's the big explosion and it's the first attempt to free the Lord of the Locusts and they fail, right? There's that. And then the last arc is the great big war at the end of the story. All of the, like, those plot beats do follow sort of the classic three-arc structure. You have the introduction of all these characters, then the complications when you find out, like, what Thorne's real deal is and the whole thing with the Red Dragon, like, all those revelations. And then you get to the climax. Yeah, but if you, you could if do you, that. If you pare it down to, you know, the three-arc structure in the series of climax, don't you lose a lot of Bones charm? If you, if you just try to pare it down to, we'll do three movies and we'll just follow the main point for it. If, well, if you lose the stupid, stupid red creature... Why would you, you lose that? Uh, what, what, what was the, uh, the little one that they adopted? Uh, Reddy? Bartleby. Bartleby. Yeah, Bartleby. You know, if you lose Rockjaw, you know... It, Why would you, it, though? In, in, again, Why? In, three, in three movies, doing all of that plot? Rockjaw, but this is the thing, like, the... If they're taking the book, and again, like we don't know what Osborne's plan is here, right? But if we're assuming it's a straight adaptation, if you're f- taking the book, Rockjaw has a very specific role, right? He pops up for a very specific amount of time, and then he's out of the picture. The same goes for Bartleby. Bartleby is introduced at a certain point and sticks with the characters throughout. It can be done. I don't think it even needs more than a trilogy. But if, again, assuming that they're following the the order of the books, it makes sense to me. You know, I would not want this to be a situation like The Hobbit where they took a hundred page book and they turned it into three films and and they stretched it to the breaking point and beyond, right? That is a valid criticism. But here, I think there is enough material on the level of plot where, and again, like I have to attribute this to Smith's sort of I don't know if he if he ever explicitly said that he based Bone on Lord of the Rings, but there's a lot of parallel there in terms of structure, right? Like the and the way that the trades have been parceled out over the years, it's not coincidental that these three parts of the story happen one after the other, mm-hmm. and you can introduce all of the various elements and all the cues of like Ted and the bugs. You can have them in these films. There's no reason not to because these are framed as quick encounters, right? Like the, the introduction of someone like Rockjaw is not a character where you See, would have to spend it's an fun, hour. It's funny you're talking about The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings because for me, uh, uh, Bone is closer to The Hobbit because we do get the whole thing, you know, from not from the point of view of the big epic heroes, we get it a bit from the side. 
That's true of Lord of the Rings too, though. Well, no, because in Lord of the Rings, well, it's true to a point, but in the movies especially, it's not true because Aragorn is far more in the foreground there. Because because it's Hollywood and you got to do the big epic battles and you got to push, you know, the big big good-looking good guy in the middle. I mean, look, I have to imagine that on some level when these films do come out, Thor is going to be a major character. Hmm? If these yeah. films come out, Thorne is going to be at least as central as Phony Bone and Phone Bone and, and the others, right? Like, she's going to be there. So that much is certainly true. I, I do think, though, that in terms of content, the, the thing about The Hobbit is that it really is very abbreviated. It just goes from A to B to C and straightforward. Bone does it a little differently. I think Bone is a little closer to the Lord of the Rings paradigm in the sense that when they introduce a certain element, they let themselves stay with it just for a little bit. Like when Thorne goes into the whole backstory of what the dreamers are and the Veni and Kari and, and they go to the city and they go through all of these things, you have to have the time in that place. Hmm. Right? And the same goes for like when Grandma Ben actually reveals like what her deal is and who Lucius was and how all of these things are actually connected. You have to give it its time. The Hobbit was sort of, you know, they're in the forest, they're talking spiders. The spiders go away, you never see them again. They don't play any part in this. Next, we go get the, uh, the orcs and the orcs do, like, it just sort of, you know, it's like a travelogue in that sense. Okay, so that's that what was I think. movie news. Uh, Sean, possible. you have a computer game thing. I do have a video game uh, bit of news to announce, sort of the last item on my list here, but it is a good one. Uh, Telltale Games, who are currently working on the Batman game, have announced that they're also planning a Guardians of the Galaxy game. Now, here's why this news utterly delights me. The thing about Telltale is that their games are, on the one hand, very simple to play, Right? It's point and click adventures and, you know, you choose, you make certain decisions throughout the game, etc. But they do it with a very distinct style. It's very colorful, very entertaining, very enjoyable. And they also have the, the games of theirs that are oriented towards humor tend to be very, very funny. Obviously, nobody plays their Walking Dead games for giggles, right? That's not going to happen. But uh, there were some pretty amusing moments in uh, Fables, The Wolf Among Us. There were some very funny moments in uh, Tales from the Borderlands. So they're going to do a Guardians of the Galaxy game, and I am ecstatic. Because, you know, the thought of them doing, like, Rocket and Groot just fills me with joy. Because it's exactly in their wheelhouse. It is exactly the sort of thing that they do really, really well. And I look forward to it. They tend to re- release these games episodically, and I always wait for the last episode, so I haven't played the Batman game yet, because it's only halfway done. But, you know, it's been getting good reviews, so I'm looking forward to seeing what, what they do with it. Guardians of the Galaxy makes a lot of sense for them. And really, like, when you think about it, of all the Marvel properties in the cinematic universe, I would argue maybe Guardians of the Galaxy is, like, the best one suited for a video game in general. Because of its tone, because it's so flashy and colorful and has all of these interesting elements to it, whereas here it's sort of, you know, it's the Hulk, it's Iron Man, it's the Avengers fighting giant robots. We kind of get that already. Okay, and uh, we'll finish with actual bit of comics news. Yes. Uh, March Book Free by John Lewis, uh, Nate Powell, and Andrew Iden became mm. the first comic book to win the National Book Award. Congratulations. Yeah, it won in the young uh, young people's literature category. 
Okay, have you it, read it's it? Not, it's not, uh, I've read the first March book, which was good, a bit mm. thin on the plot, but it's it's the man's life story. He knows what he's doing about it. And, <laughs> Nate, Powell's, and Nate Powell's art is spectacular. Now, it's not the first comic to be nominated, just... You know, last year we had uh, Nimona, which was nominated but didn't win. And Boxers and Saints, yeah. Boxers and Saints by yes. uh, Jin Lon Young was also nominated. But this is the first one that won. And, you know, congratulations to the people uh, doing good work. And at a time like this, this is one of the books we need, I think. Oh, yeah. This is definitely one of the books America needs. Yeah. Would be useful. Uh, shall we go on to reviews? <sighs> Please, let's go on to reviews. What do you want to start with? Uh, WWE? Sure. <laughs> oh boy, here we go. Okay. Uh, WWE, then, now, forever, one shot. This is like an issue zero of the future Boom Studios WWE comic. Yeah. Uh, there are multiple writers and artists, like we have Dennis Hopeless, Ross Thibodeau? Ross Thibodeau. Thibodeau, Rob Sharmanger, and Derek Friedoffs. And we have uh, art by Dan Mora. And Rob Gilroy and Woo! Daniel Bayless. Yeah, best of the issue, I'd say. Uh-huh. Uh, this is 48 pages, $4. Yeah. yeah it's, it's good. It's a decent price. And there's one big dramatic story. There are uh, one short dramatic story, two like, comedic takes, and a series of like one-page introductions of what I assume would be the main characters slash superstars within the ongoing series itself i guess so wwe more like wtf because Uh, my god okay let me just like because i read this twice and i was like i don't understand you got wrestlers here arguing about potato salad and being hit by jeeps (laughs) okay and kidnapped by cryptic hobos and then they time travel to fight dinosaurs no, it's like, because the, the, the main story is closer in tone, I guess, to what would be the WWE today. And I'm still thinking about American style, you know, fake wrestling or... Which is what it is. Yeah. In terms of, I grew up in the 1990s version where everything was much more cartoony and you had, you know, you, the, the wrestling clown and the wrestling uh, undertaker with superpowers. And this is a bit more, you know, big broody guys beating each other up a bit more, I, not realistic, no, but toned down version of that story. Uh, the main story I'm talking about. Right. Well, the main story was really weird because... Hey, it wasn't what? weird. It was just dull, you know? No, you but like, I, what I didn't understand was, are they treating these characters as if like, do you see where I'm having the difficulty here? It's, it, it, they're in, apparent in the world of the in comics, story, there are or... wrestlers, but wrestling, you know, feuds are real. And when people punch each other, it's not a game. They're actually punching each other. Like, they are their characters in that yes, case. Yes, yes. So, it, it's sort of like, yeah, it, this was a huge point of difficulty, even, like, when they first solicited it. Like, I didn't understand whether they would be treating the, the fake storylines that they play out on the stage, like, in the ring, and write them as if they're real in the comic. Yeah. Uh, which, well, in, in, the, in the headlining story, at least. It seems to be the case, right? Where they're talk- But on the other hand, then they're talking about how, 
like this guy has you know he 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 basically does that thing wrestlers do sometimes where they switch sides and become like good or evil depending on the circumstances. Yeah, the, the big plot is about the fact faction of wrestlers called the Shield. There are three of them. Two of them look almost exactly the same, despite <laughs> one of them one of them having colored hair and a massive tattoo on his shoulder. So you're supposed to be able to tell them apart, but unless they call each other by name, I completely forgot. Dude, uh, I don't even know. Like, I'm the wrong person to be asking yeah, about yeah. wrestling. So, you know, there's... And, and we get the story from the point of view of one of them who's, like, starting to shift away from the others right in the middle of a long-running feud with a group of, like you said, hillbilly wrestlers. Yeah. And, you, and they set it up to something which is, I guess, meant to be, a, like, a shocking swerve. Which is not really. It's just. It's just. Like, it would be shocking if we had some kind of context, but like they're treating it as yeah. if it's not scripted. So and, and, like, it's, and like you said, the oddness of them playing it straight within, like, like wrestling is real within the universe. So the people are calling each other by their wrestling names and dressed yeah. up in the wrestling getup in while say visiting a yacht club. And you know, all everybody around them is dressed like a human being, and they just stand there with their post Rob Liefeld leather pouches. And then a jeep comes flying through the <laughs> through the yacht. Yes. What the hell? <laughs> so I I would, like, if you're if you're like a wrestling fan, I guess you already know this style of storytelling, and you can accept it. And you know, we forget as superhero fans that for a lot of first time readers, a lot of the assumptions we take for granted are ridiculous. Like when you tell somebody, "Oh, yes." Dr. Von Doom is a great and deep character and, uh, and, and the immediate response is, wait, wait, this guy's name is actually Victor Von Doom. Yeah, and but I think... Yeah, I got used to it. But is that... That's not really what the argument about wrestling has traditionally been. No, has no, it, no like, I'm not talking about traditionally. I'm, I'm like giving the devil's... Um, I'm playing the devil's advocate here. Yeah, but not, but... not that it helps. Just, you know, the art is okay <sighs> in the Liz story. But for for what what I would have wanted from a wrestling comic is for it to be like if you're if you're putting it playing it as yes this is real you're not doing it like what was the wrestling comics we reviewed uh, ringside ringside if you're not doing it this this is a real story about you know the seedy side of people punching each other for nobody would have done that though. yeah like, yeah because it's you know. If you do it, you know, go hog wild, you know, embrace the cartooniness and the stupidity, which is what the second story and third stories are doing, right? To an extent. Uh, this is the point where I'll say, like, I have a huge problem with one of these stories. Mm. Uh, Rob Schamberger's Then Now Forever. Oh, yeah, that was... It's about... Okay, so basically, it's about uh, this girl named Sasha Banks who sees a wrestler on TV and thinks, you know, I want to do that. He's her hero, and she works hard, and she uh, joins the WWE. She trains. She ends up making it in wrestling. She's a real wrestler. Sucka. Yeah, and and when well, I guess I didn't. I didn't. I, I, fact I check know that. I, I'm not. Well, I, I'm not I, super familiar, but she is a real okay. wrestler. Okay, and then like the story ends with the beat where this girl in the audience sees her and says, "You know, I want to do that. I want to be like her." In theory, that sounds great, but here's the problem, Tom. Mm-hmm. YouTube is free. And because YouTube is free, I was able to look up women's wrestling in the WWE. And what I found was mud fights, uh, chocolate pudding fights, one of which was just two years ago and apparently involved the widow of a re- late wrestler 
who's the guy that Sasha is admiring in this story. So I'm reading this and it's like, Schamberger wants it to be an inspirational tale, right? About how, you know, she saw this guy and she became inspired and she worked really hard and now she's inspiring other women. But it's like, uh, look at what she's actually doing, though. Well, she's in an industry that... Taking it back to superhero comics, you can say the same thing about, well, you know, you can put all sort of female superheroes as aspiring characters, but when you look at what actually happens to most female superheroes, you're like... Oh no! Not not even like years um, ago. Even today, I I don't I don't think that that taking, analogy holds. The up. comic book version seems to be taking not not the high road, but like the aspirational road for this story, which is fine. My big problem with the story was that the art wasn't very. It's so super stylized and color contrasted that for half the time I couldn't exactly tell what was going on. In, just, the, in the fight scene in this in the second page of the Schamberg part, you know, is she's she's thrown into the ropes and then she's pushing them back. What what what's going on there? Well, this Physically. was the problem. No, this was the problem you mentioned when we covered it in the solicitations, which is that it's very difficult for panel art to cover a wrestling match. Like mm. these people are supposed to be moving around and, and you know acting very kinetically and very acrobatically, yeah. and it's the, the not. Two- the two things that I like were the two comedy stories. Uh, the Rob Gilroy illustrated one featuring, uh, what was their name? The New Days, the which New are Day. a group of, uh, of three wrestlers who are like super optimistic and like, we will be the future and everything will be great. And it's a stupid, crazy time travel story where they go back to the origin of wrestling to fix the pessimism of the past. Yeah. And this I like. This was actually funny. And that I, had some charm to it, I'll admit. You know, the dry, they have the dry Lorian, which is like the DeLorean, only it's a cardboard box. I mean, if that had been the actual comic, I would have loved it. Yeah. But... And, and the Rob Gilroy art is... You know, Rob Gilroy, bless his hands, he is a perfect comedy artist. He's just... Yeah. Just, the final page reveal of that story, which I... <laughs> Oog. It's just so... Beautiful. And then you have the, uh, what was the tugboat story? I have no idea who that guy is. Neither do I. A wrestler who's a, who's a Bluto-esque sailor in a white hat, and he's drawn in like a super old-timey cartoony style, and he's fighting this big, huge, fat guy, and, you know, he's helped by this kid sidekick. I mean, and it says a lot about... charming little story. <laughs> it says a lot about the WWE that reading that story, I couldn't tell if anything here was real or based on reality or complete fiction or a cartoon. As, I cannot as, tell. As, as they strayed away from reality, I find myself enjoying this issue more. The thing that was just trying to ape, I would say, the ongoing wrestling storylines and the way they yeah. portray wrestling nowadays, just... You know, if I, if I want to see it in the ring, I'd see it in the ring. And I don't. Maybe that's the problem, right? I don't. I am not a big wrestling fan. I know just about enough about it because people I follow online are wrestling fans. And they right. tweet about it or write about it. So I, I follow the X-Axis. So I know what's Paul O'Brien thinking about wrestling. Therefore, I sure. know a bit about wrestling. But I mean, look, even without watching it, I mean, I know about all about their problems, you know, the high mortality rate and all that. It's weird for me well, to see it. that's the behind-the-scene line. You wouldn't yeah. want to, they, they would never do that. Except, well, that's the thing. Like, I don't know if I'm interested in sort of the sanitized craziness that they portray, like, as if the melodrama is real. Because we know it's scripted. It's the same kind of illusion they try to sell with the shows, right? Like, the, the, the reason that the WWE functions and maintains a fan base is because in, while they're playing these matches out, they don't acknowledge 
the fictionality of no, it, right? No, like uh, they Sean, treated they, they've acknowledged the fictionality long. No, no, no. Nobody they treated who's watching wrestling nowadays thinking of course not like a five-year-old nobody's watching this thinking oh it's real everybody no but they do but they do go to certain lengths in order to maintain that illusion for while you're engaged with it right and it's there's even like terminology this i learned from ringside right there's terminology about like wrestlers who are not allowed to break their quote-unquote scripted personality while they're performing and these things happen and they continue to happen so Reading a comic where, like, half of it seems to be sort of crazy, cartoonish, completely fictional things like time-traveling cardboard boxes, and then the other half is sort of playing the melodrama straight, I was just sort of like, I don't know which of these versions they're actually going for for the ongoing. I assume they're going for the mostly melodrama for the main storyline. The the comedy would be, like, set pieces on the side. Yeah, like I I said, I... The comedy, you know. the comedy was funny, and the cartooning, the cartooning in the comedy beats was superior to the cartooning exactly in, in the straight story, which is weird because the guy drawing the main story was Dan Mora, who was a great artist, right? I don't think the art we, was the we, problem. We I think it was the no, tone. no, but it was just we, we read we read his stuff on Hexed, and he was great there, and he was just it's okay, it's perfectly fine, but there is nothing. No, but look at what he's working with, Tom. Yeah, like he, he's, he can't do the amazing things that he did yeah. there because they're basically telling him, no, 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 tie it down, make it more grounded, more more boring. He's basically there. illustrating the story of like three guys and their drama. And it's like, okay, I don't care about any of that. So, uh, And I'm as not for the one-shots, for the one-page like introduction of characters finishing the issue, uh-huh. it would have been fine by itself, but the last one... Is the Dusty Rhodes one, and we're reading it post-election, and he's talking oh, about the American dreams, and you know, uh, people who were robbed of their jobs, and I'm like, no. No. This is literally the worst last page you could have chosen. Yeah, and the thing is, like, you know that in terms of the WWE itself, if that is the character's angle, now you know they're going to rewrite it, because well, WWE... Well, no, because they are Trump fans, right? Trump was actually are they? part of... Trump was in the WWE. That I saw, yes. I saw his little cameo. Uh, someone really should have taken him out then. But anyway, um, that's a different story and a different discussion. Uh, are you, you know, are you coming back for the main sh- series? Um, no. If, if they're doing the comedy stories and they will collect them like in a trade in the future. Yeah, like, like say the Adventure Time Sugar Bits, which collected all the short stories from Adventure Time. Hmm. I might read that if they keep on that caliber of artists. If they're saying, well, if you want to read uh, Rob Gilroy illustrated comedy story featuring wrestlers and only that, I will say yes. I if think you're saying, more... if you're saying to me, would you pay three to four dollars? I, I guess it would be four dollars to pay for 20 pages of the headline boring story and then four pages of amusing stuff. I would say no. Yeah, I, I think that their strategy here would probably more likely be like the first trade of Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, where the backup strips for Bulk and Skull were collected in the same trade just after the main story. Mm, that seems like it seems more likely in terms of their strategy. Oh, so no, I, in that case, I wouldn't. I wouldn't bother. Fair enough. Let's it's, talk about Motro. Motro number one. Yes. This it's... is written by Ulysses Farinas and Eric Freitas, drawn by Ulysses Farinas with colors, with colors by 
uh, Ryan Hill and published by Oni Press. Yes. Now, this was interesting. Let's... <laughs> let, okay. beautiful, Sean. Okay. I'm crying let's, tears of joy. Let's... A talking tank, Sean. Hang on, hang on. Elephant Sorry. in the room, right? Mm-hmm. Elephant in the room. We got to talk about it. This is very clearly a take on Commandi and Adventure Time, right? We have this... Nameless boy protagonist with big blonde hair, Mm -hmm. living in isolation in some kind of post-apocalyptic world and trying to be a hero. He's Finn. Right down, like Finn also had, I don't know if you've seen Adventure Time or or too much of it, but he has this huge head of blonde hair. I've seen Adventure Time and he he is very Finn-like. Yeah, so that off the table, right? Acknowledging that similarity. Though the design sense is, if you're talking about, you know, sources of inspiration, it's Mad Max. See, I would have said Steven Universe because of the way that the boy's face looks. No, know, no like, I'm not talking about the oh, design the, the, the of the world design. Of the art. Yeah, the world design. Yeah, oh, Mad, Mad, Mad Max. Max for sure. You've got like the gangs running around mm-hmm. and some of them are like slightly misshapen and mutated. Mm-hmm. So, and, and they point that out. They're like, you know, look at One your head. One of the guys has a box head. You have a box head and they, they point it out. They're like, look at your head. Your head is square. Um, so... Overall, I really liked it. Like, the the plot doesn't have much to go on in terms of an original hook or a new concept. It's the idea of, you know, this boy uh, was tasked by his dying father to help people to do good in this hopeless dystopia. And uh, this nearby village is attacked. He goes to help. And he fouls up. He pretty much fouls up. He fouls up, but we also get to see like a little taste of there are like sentient tanks in this world that are yeah. treated like pets, and there are motorbikes that communicate with emojis. Now, uh, in in this world, apparently, mo- most vehicles, at least all the ones we see, are literal living beings that start small and grow up. So this boy pet is a tiny, like finger-sized <laughs> motorcycle that talks with. That talks with images. Like, if it's hungry, it, you know, he tells the kid, and we see an image of a burger in his speech balloon. Yeah, which I thought was cute. Uh, it's it's immediately adorable. And, you know, Ulysses Farina's art is just, it's there. I always love that man's art, and, you know, he keeps slowly developing his style. And it's just so beautiful. All the little details and all the little nudges. And yeah. the way, the when he goes down... The hill on page three, is it? And you can yeah. see all the crooks and crannies and the trees in the background and the foreground. It's it's beautiful, but it's not like drowning in detail. It's it's detailed, but cartoonish at the same time. Yeah, it doesn't have to like spell out every single aspect. It's also mm-hmm. enough. Sometimes you can just leave things abstract. And like when, when he fails at the end to save the villagers, mm-hmm. you don't have like the widescreen shot of the carnage, right? It's just mm-hmm. like panels here and panels there indicating that these people are dead right and it allows and it and the art style allows uh farinas to do some very brutal images yeah without the turning into like i don't know avatar press bloodshed because we do have like mass murder in that issue yeah but but because of the style is so cartoony it's played not for less but you know it's the edge is taking off a bit. Yeah, it also makes it a little easier, I think, to sympathize with the boy, like, at the very end when he has that scene with the gang leader that he killed. Yeah. Where he just sort of collapses and, and cries for his dad. It's not his dad, but, like, you know, he, he's sort of, like, reliving that memory. Uh, it, it does sort of, like, pluck at your heartstrings a little bit, and I have to commend them on that, because... <laughs> the scene where the gang leader, you know, remembers his beloved tank as a child. Yeah. It's like immediately after exploding, <laughs> like it, it just 
blew up and he's like, no, my tank, my pet. It's like you killed my dog, yeah, basically. It's, it's not it's it's not a perfect issue. Like you said, it is very generic-ish. And I did have a bit of an issue with the way the fight ended between the kid and the gang leader. He just... Yeah. What? what he just... Died? What? I'm not, well, I'm not really sure. Did he have a heart attack? I no, guess. I, I think the idea is, you know, he has a heart attack, and I, I think I even understand why Farinas and Freitas did that because, like, part of the thing here is that yes, he does sort of give the tanks diarrhea and they explode, but that's not considered like murder. He doesn't have to kill anyone. Like, there's a scene where he he when he first arrives at the village, he punches this guy basically into orbit, right? Mm-hmm. If this had been Mad Max, his head would have just flown off and there would have been blood everywhere. Here, it's treated as more, like, there is that cartoon element of he punches a guy, the guy goes flying into the distance, and you never see him again. It, so, it's funny that that we've talked about Bone earlier in the episode, because he, the boy is a bit like the Bone siblings, you know, like, they've they, this odd cartoony creatures finding themselves in the middle of this Lord of the Rings story, and yeah. here you have this adventure time hero in this very violent Mad Max world, right? Yeah. And it is very toned down. Like when I say adventure time, the resemblance is almost entirely uh, like in terms of physical design. This kid doesn't act like Finn. No, no. He has the impulse to be a hero, but it doesn't come with any of the sort of lighthearted stuff or like the wonder that you get in the land of Ooh, right? Mm-hmm. Um now, all that said, like, and acknowledging that in terms of the first issue, it's not clear to me what the plot is, because the gang storyline is resolved within the issue. Yeah. So I don't know what, like, I don't know what Farina's... It's gonna, is... it's gonna be like learning to be a hero story. And um, I, I guess what he learns here is that violence isn't very fun. Well, yeah, but also that, like... The next issue will presumably have to start from scratch because I didn't see any plot elements here that could carry over to the next one. Well, no, it was all much dead. Yeah, it was all like wrapped up very neatly. I thought so. I'm not sure where it's going next, but I will say that you know, for all that it doesn't seem to be trying to do something different, what it does do, it does well enough that I want to see what comes next. Oh, it's particularly well told. Yeah, it's just beautiful and funny. And yeah, a very good now, emotional. This is an bits. ongoing, right? Mm-hmm. Everything that I've seen suggests that it's an ongoing, and I, yeah, it's I an would ongoing. be happy. So I'm I'm on board for that. Oh, then. most most definitely. Yeah. So our last review is Mother Panic number one. This is by Jody Hauser and Tommy Lee Edwards. The last uh, of the young last animal launch books, of right? the young animals. Yeah. In fact, that's something that Gerard Way explicitly points out. It's like this is the last. New launch of the imprint, for now at least. What they got cooking up in the future, we'll see. Now, okay. Oh boy, Mother Panic. So, Violet is a high society girl who resurfaces after a period of absence, uh, comes to Gotham City, in fact. Uh, her mother is dealing with Alzheimer's and has been for a very long time. Uh, we have a glimpse of presumably the villain of the story, who is a woman named Gala, who uses murder and blood and atrocity as her medium to make, you know, quote-unquote artistic statements. Yep. Now, and and sort of, like, introduces Violet as the vigilante mother panic. Now, I have to say this. Um, this echoes to some extent a sentiment that I had with Cape Carson, but here it's really pronounced, which is I'm not sure that the explicit DCU connections 
are going to do the book any favor. And in here, it's particularly pronounced because almost every aspect of this story could have stood out in its own context. But when you subsume that into the world of Batman, it loses any and all distinction. Like, as an example... So Gala, the the villain, has this very long-winded speech about how, you know, she drugs her victims so that they won't scream and mess up the blood spatter because it has to look just so for her art, etc. This is not new in the world of Gotham, right? The Joker has been occasionally written as sort of like the madman psychotic artist and, you know, treating Harley as if she were a work of art for years. Mm-hmm. The fact that, uh, and I'm going to temporarily throw down our PG-13 rating because this is a direct quotation from the issue. Uh, so Violet, at some point, when she's asked if she's affiliated with Batman because of her costume, says, fuck the bat, right? Yeah. Now, here, here's the problem. First of all, not only is Violet not the first person in this particular environment to be a filthy, rich, high-society person to be a vigilante, she's not even the fifth, right? Let's not forget that Kate Kane was introduced yeah. in the same it's, way. It's, if you're Israel trying to do a distinction was, between Mother Panic and Batman, this issue does it badly because... for The all, only for distinction all is that she doesn't like him. For all That's this like luster, the, this could... This could have easily have been, I don't know, the new a new bad girl title. You know, meet your meet the new bad girl, Violet Page. She's a high strung socialist who buckles all the rules and whatever. I don't know she's a new, uh, what what's a bad name that's not taken right now? Black Bat. Azrael was it? <laughs> she's the new <laughs> but Azrael was introduced in identical tones, right? It, this is exactly the problem. In Gotham City specifically, not only have we seen this story play out of the new vigilante who doesn't give a damn about Batman and is going to do things their own way, but they're also super rich, which is how they finance everything. Yeah, even, that, the, even the sort of semi-disturbed dark tone is very much like the Scott Snyder when he wrote Detective Comics with uh, Knight, uh, Dick Grayson as Batman. With, you know, the, the, the debauched uh, Scott Snyder. When he yeah. first got into Batman, this is very much like one of the stories he would write. So even in tone, it's not very distant from your typical Batman story, really. Like, how is this a young animal book? That, that's the thing that I don't Cave understand. Cave Carson, for me, worked as a young animal book because yeah. he was specifically on the offside of the DC Universe, right? He knew of Superman, and he met Superman. But, he, you know, the people he actually interacted with was the guy who made the Metal Man and Wild Dog. Exactly. It wasn't. And it wasn't. It wasn't the big guys. And here, when you put her in Gotham, well, you sort of realize that no, there is nothing particularly unique about this character or the way she interacts with people. And yeah, it's you know, too... the villain in theory is a nice superhero idea. You know, the mad artist taking to it's the Joker though. That's well, no, how but the Joker the is Joker. doing it. As the Joker is stand up. This is like a literal art, art, high gallery paintings and such. I'm, yeah. I'm almost positive the Joker has been referred to as that kind of artist. In okay, that might have just been the uh, Jack Nicholson's Joker. Maybe it was just him. But no, the, but the even then, Dan Slott did this in his Arkham series with Doodlebug, the graffiti art, the mad yeah. graffiti artist. So it's not, it's not even that of a new idea. Exactly. No, like, I'm there's saying not... it's, it's a fine idea in that sense that it hasn't been abused too much. It yeah. has, though. That's exactly the point. It's 
Again, like, the, the problem here is that she is in Gotham. If she were literally in any other city on planet DC, like, you know, Cave Carson, we talked about how the cliffhanger in that first issue suffers because you don't know who Wild Dog is, Well, it right? suffered for you. <laughs> for so me, no, far. for me, because yeah. I didn't know who he was. Yes, it wasn't yes. until I saw people discussing it afterwards and looked him up. It's like, okay, that's another character. Presumably the next issue, which comes out this week, will clarify that. The problem here... It's completely different. It's not a question of context. It's a question of repetition. Because you put her in a setting where every single attribute of this story has already been done, it becomes kind of a real problem. Like, how does she stand out? She's not the first female vigilante. That role has been taken by Batgirl and Batwoman and, uh, uh, spoiler, and, uh, Cassandra Cain, right? Any of whom would have fit that role of screw the bat, I'll do what I want, right? In and fact, ha- you and remember Huntress. Oh, Huntress being the epitome, right? Yeah. Of being like, you know, the person who does not agree with Batman's system of values and does what she wants. And occasionally is like associated with him because she happens to be in the same space. Now that I think about it, Helena Bertinelli was rich too, wasn't she? She was the daughter of a mob boss, so Yeah, well she had money. Yeah. So there you go, right? Even that is not... So uh, Violet in this story surfaces as sort of like the female Bruce Wayne, where she had a scandal and she came back and she, she promotes this image of herself as a party girl to distract from her activities as Mother Panic. But then, okay. And, you know, she... She's depicted in the story as, like, one of her... Her father is killed in this mysterious accident, and her mother is sort of her only uh, supporter, even though she's sick. Switch the genders, and you have Kate Kane's backstory, right? Mm -hmm. The murder of her mother, and her father being, like, her Alfred. So this is not... uh, It really suffers There just isn't much there. There's... The art is nice, you know, I'm not the world's biggest Tommy Lee Edwards fan, but he does very high contrast stuff, and the scene in the actual art room with the black holes is very nice looking. But, yeah, but it's but not it's enough. Not, it's not enough. It's not one of those art moments that's enough to to make me no. go, like, I can ignore the fact that the art is, a, that the story is a bit generic because the art pulls me into the story. Well, the broader problem is that, you know, for three months now, Young Animal has been pushing itself on the idea that their books are meant to be different. They're meant to be weird. They're meant to be alternative. They're meant to do things that you could not necessarily accomplish under the sort of corporate franchises that DC owns, right? Yeah. And yet here we are with a book that is so typical. This that is it not. This is not a book for dangerous humans. No, not at all. And you know, it, it occurs to me, Gerard Way seems to be aware of this. In the letter columns to this issue, he talks about the fact that he thinks Violet might be the least sympathetic character or the most difficult character that the audience will have to like. But he misses the point. The reason that that would be true isn't because Jodie Hauser is writing her as the sort of standoffish, unpleasant person. It's because we have already seen at least half a dozen characters exactly like her positioned throughout Batman's history. So this is not new. Anyone who's, who knows Kate Kane, who knows Jean-Paul Baptiste, who knows any other like interpretation of Batman pretenders who show up and want to do their own thing, whether it's Helena Bertinelli, whether it's Cassandra Kane, whether it's Stephanie Ma- uh, Brown. I almost said Stephanie Myers. I wish <laughs> Like, send her to Gotham. Uh, say what you will about Doom Patrol. It was at least 
very interesting in even if it the interest was what exactly are you doing there yeah and this and the, and the art in doom patrol was again sorry a lot better this is just this is rote this is like yeah this let me is, say this let me say this i like now that we have all four of the titles to compare mm-hmm. i can honestly say that the way that i would rank them and, and i i look forward to hearing like your your own thoughts on this i would rank them as in terms of the most successful first issue and introduction to a premise and introduction to a world that genuinely interests me shade would have to be first because that issue really did manage to put forward its entire premise and you could absolutely make the argument that there's nothing else like it on the stands after that i would say cave carson because cave carson started down that road and i feel didn't quite like it might be relying a bit too much on knowledge that the reader doesn't have at that point which was just my experience, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, after that, I'd say Doom Patrol, because Doom Patrol, you remember, I found that bewildering, but still open to the possibility of let's see what happens. Mother Panic is the only young animal book that I'm not coming back for. Yeah, I, I, well, usually I don't agree with you on that stuff, but yeah. Usually I don't agree with you about that stuff, but yeah. It's just, it's not a terrible book, it's just a boring book. Yeah, and... It's sort of, I don't know if this was something that Wei was instructed to do or if it's a decision that he made on his own, but either way, it was the wrong decision. Every other book in the Young Animal line benefits from distance from Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Justice League, because Mm. you can only be weird and off the cuff and strange and crazy when you're away from that. The closer you get to the center of the DC or the Marvel Universe, the more in the box you have to be. You know what I mean? The more you're sort of stuck in very specific patterns and molds that can't deviate too far. Well, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think Morrison, you know, during his time writing even the Justice League or the X-Men made some very weird stuff. But But Morrison didn't go as far on those books as he did on stuff like Doom Patrol, on stuff like, um, what am I thinking of here? Seven Soldiers of Victory, right? In those books, he was allowed to take those ideas a lot further. Like, when you look at his new X-Men run, his new X-Men run had some pretty insane ideas, but you can't say that he really took them to the level of, I don't know, the Invisibles? No. Thank God for that. No. Well, yeah. First of all, thank God for that, because nobody had time for that. But well, like, a lot of he, people have time for the Invisibles. No, but I, it's I, just but not, I think, we're not that type of Morrison fans. Sure. I'm, I'm a filth guy myself. Well, that... Oh. <laughs> That's you're the one not thing a fan we, of the Invisibles well, we'll, we we'll disagree on a lot of things That's the one thing <laughs> That you're like Sean the filth is the most brilliant piece of something And you're like Tom no, it's you're not. an idiot No I would never say that you're an idiot Your I would just say that like this matter Tom my, is idiotic My experience with the filth Was entirely negative But that is me That is about my taste mm. That is about what I look for in stories yeah, Right. Again, again back Back to Mother Panic yeah, if you're doing this first issue, it's actually called the work in progress. Don't don't show us your work in progress. Show us the work, right? If you if there is something about this character that's interesting and unique and not Batman like, and I assume that's what they're aiming for, start with that. Well, if you're, te- if you're telling me we're gonna show you the interesting bits at part five, I'm yeah, not gonna come this... back to parts two, three, and four. This is a miscalculation, I think, on Hauser's part as well, because when you look at the profile page for Mother Panic at the back of the issue, mm. 
It talks about her as being a vigilante. It talks about her being rich. It talks about her father's death, her mother's institutionalization, her brother's disappearance. Her brother, as far as I could tell, isn't in this issue. Nothing there suggested. And, you know, her, her coming back to deal with, like, the dark. Even in terms of, like, think about it this way. Even in terms of her actions as a vigilante in this issue, even they don't stand out. What does she do? She stops a guy from getting murdered by, like, some some corporate flunkies, right? Mm-hmm. That's exactly what Batman would have done. Oh, there's exactly. also, we, we should mention, there's a backup beat but written by Jim Kruger and drawn by Phil Hester. If and anything, that's more interesting. <laughs> and, it, and it's very good looking because Phil Hester is drawing it and it's inked by Andy Park. So and it's it an looks, interesting start to a story, right? Well, uh, it's, uh, it's, just, it's a Gotham radio story from all... It's the- a Gotham radio show where the, the broadcaster is murdered on live radio. Mm. And that's the mystery. And you see everybody's see, reactions like, oh my God. So I'm kind of hoping for Gotham podcast. <laughs> I think we already have that in Welcome to Night Vale. Mm. <laughs> that would have been an excellent story doing like the the voice of Gotham from oh sure. you know the clown escaped from prison and murdered 20 people and If in other news been... the park is open again after like, the giant plants have been t- turned away by the police like that would be a legitimate way to also explain why she's called mother panic mm. If she were like a radio personality who reports on the crazy things that happen in Gotham but like her She doesn't stand out in any way here. She's basically, she reads like a clone of Bruce Wayne. She, like him, is rich. She, like him, is a vigilante. She, like him, chooses to take action in a specific situation where a guy is about to get shot by a bunch of cronies. This is literally a scenario out of any single Batman book that's come out in the last 30 years, right? So... Even there, and in terms of her design, like, she's mistaken for a member of the Bat Clan because she's even wearing a headpiece with, like, high ears. So, I'm like, even there, she doesn't have, she doesn't seem to have any particular abilities. She doesn't seem to have uh, a different interest. Like, you remember when Rucka first introduced Batwoman, the angle there was that she was tackling supernatural threats, right? Well, so like even that and you had J.H. Williams on art oh, which is immediate sure. sell-through of no, but I, this but, is weird and different and unique. Yes, but what I mean by that is also it allowed her to tackle an aspect of Gotham crime fighting that Batman doesn't necessarily deal with. Hmm. Right? He doesn't deal with the supernatural, so she could. And that allowed her to stand out to some extent. Here, I don't see her doing anything that would make her, you know distinct in any way and that's kind of a huge problem when this is uh a young animal title that's being marketed as sort of the antithesis of the quote-unquote safe humans right <laughs> this book completely plays it safe yeah so mother panic and the safe humans coming to a club near you not my club that's for sure mm-hmm. i i think i'll be completely fair here because i do like what hauser is doing on faith uh i will maybe come back for the first arc But I don't have very high expectations. If the reviews are great. Yeah. So speaking of uh, first arcs, shall we do our trade review? Let's. And we're doing something strange. We're doing a number free trade. We're usually doing, just like we're doing mostly number ones, we're mostly doing the first trades in the series. But it's a bit of a slim pickings week, and I've wanted to talk about that series for a long, long time. Yes, you so have. So we're doing Bandette Volume 3. House of the Green Mask, collecting issues 10, uh, 11 to 14 
Dark Horse slash Monkey Brain, Monkey Brain and Digital, written by Paul Tobin, with art by Colleen Coover. And this is, once again, the story of the lovable thief, Bendette, on the streets of Paris. And in this arc, she's trying to rescue her kidnapped assistant slash boyfriend, Daniel, who's been kidnapped by the mysterious The Voice. Not, <laughs> not, not the mysterious voice, the mysterious The, the Voice. voice. <laughs> the head of an sinister organization of sinisterness. And yeah. she recruits all of her connections and all of her friends, and she's out to rescue him. And this is beautiful and brilliant and all that is good in the world. You know, you suggested that we should review this trade as pure escapism after the horror of last week. And you were so right. Like, this book... Okay, so there's a couple of things going on here, right? Mm -hmm. First of all, you have Tobin's writing. His characterization of Bandette is like, you have to imagine... like. Imagine that if I had long hair right now, I'd be waving it around like I'm in a L'Oreal commercial because I'm getting the fresh breeze here, right? This is a character who is a thief, but she's a thief in sort of the Carmen, San- the Carmen San Diego mold of I'm doing it for the fun. And she's also just pure sunshine in a bottle, right? She's constantly upbeat. She's constantly positive. She has this adorable relationship with uh, with Everything, Daniel. With everyone around her. She, she is friends to animals. Everyone loves her, except for, like, the police chief. And even he sort of, like, grudgingly admits that, like, you have to love this scamp. And she's just delightful, right? Tobin really does create a protagonist here who is just fun fun to read fun to enjoy fun to follow it's just pure breath of fresh air and, and sunshine and, and when i'm reading this story i'm thinking in my head this character shouldn't work because she has no flaws whatsoever she's yeah she's, she, her only flaw if you kind of does that would be egomania because she's constantly referring to herself as the best but is it an egomania if it's true it's true <laughs> yes <laughs> It's not she actually is proper assessment of her powers, which is which she's constantly right. And and she's constantly like part of the the joy in this series is to see how she competes with people like Monsieur, where like she claims she's the greatest thief ever and he takes offense to that. And they have like thieving competitions (laughs) and it's brilliant. The police chief was constantly cursing and swearing and she's just popping up behind him and like, Oh, hello. This is a beautiful day today. Have a snack. <laughs> and then, you know, oh, and by the way, I've, I've discovered this gang of criminals and they're tied up in the basement for you. Sacre bleu. <laughs> it's like, it's the second most fun comic series on the shelves after, just after Giant Days. And, you know, just by the yeah. width of a hair of what is more joyful to me. Yeah, I I think Giant Days pulls ahead there only because their dynamics are closer to ours. So when they have their problems, like, you know, it's grounded in a more realistic tone. Here, like in, in 19, what is it, 1920s, 1930s, France. No, 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 it's like it's intentionally ambiguous because they do have phones and, you know, iPhones and computers. Just because Bendette doesn't care about it because she's a very old fashioned lover of lover of the classic person she she doesn't use it herself like when she wants to contact daniel she has a phone but she sends her cat to deliver yeah. a message onto him 
her animal messengers, and yes. her relationship with Daniel is just so adorable. You know, it's so rare for me to get caught up in like the the will they, won't they of it all. But oh my god, these two! Because he is he's basically like this bike messenger guy who keeps getting wrapped up in her adventures unintentionally, and they're friends, and he like knows. Uh, he, he's, he has like a thing for her and she figures it out at some point. Oh, she figures it out, I think, immediately. Just, be- just because she assumes everybody loves her. And, <laughs> and again, this shouldn't work, right? Characters without flaws, characters that just per- arrive perfect on the page should yeah. be annoying to the reader. You should be like, no, 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 this character is like, I don't know, a Gary Stu or whatever. But, here it works, right? The charm is just so strong that, like the characters within the story, you are taking away immediately. The first scene in the very first issue in this trade is she's fighting a pair of assassins, and she's call- and she calls Daniel not to help, but she's like, "Oh, we have to go to the cinema together after I take <laughs> care of these people, the elegant assassins." And when she actually meets the voice. Well, he gives his dramatic speech of, if you don't help me achieve what I want, your boyfriend will disappear forever. She's pulling sunglasses out of her, out of her coat and start putting on various, various pairs and handing them to him because he's shining a light into her face. And, oh, I expected that. Wait, let me have this and this. And Colin Coover's art. Oh, yes. Oh, man. Oh, Fantastic. Again, elegance, just simple. Elegance in its simplicity, every every note and every stare and every movement and every fight scene and doing the you know the, the slapstick bits where she just turns up behind the guy and you're like, oh hello, I'm Bandette, I'm here. Yeah. Or just, <laughs> Hello. Just setting up the, the, the last fight scene with the evil uh, crossbow wielding assassin that ends up be- above a parade. Yeah. Just setting it up slowly and ending it with a is it a dramatic moment? No, it's a fun moment again. Yeah. I think that it's so... Well, it's not rare per se, but it is so enjoyable when a writer and artist complement themselves as perfectly as Tobin and Coover do here. Mm-hmm. Because he, on the one hand, has like the, the capacity to script these crazy moments, right? And to also... You know, he writes Bandette as a character who would be a... You're absolutely right that she would be grading as sort of like a Mary Sue, just irritating, if you didn't get the sense that her positivity was so genuine. You know, like, she doesn't have a mean bone in her body. She's never, like, spiteful, and she's never cruel, and she's never... You know, this is a character who is quintessentially positive. She She's the most positive character since the Golden Age Superman, right? Yeah, she's super upbeat. She just... You know, she likes stealing stuff, but she only steals from people who can afford it and from yeah. bad people. And she mostly and she steals for the fun of stealing, and she mostly returns that stuff yeah. later. This is why, like the the comparison that I always draw, like in terms of their how she's presented, it, she's like the mirror universe version of Carmen Sandiego, right? Like Carmen Sandiego, more of Lupin the Third. That would work too. Like Carmen Sandiego, I'm thinking more because of like the element of style, mm-hmm. where she steals things. Just for the hell of it. She doesn't actually want anything that she steals. She just does it for the show, right? For To prove her skills and to, to sort of, like, have a ball. And Bandette is a lot like that. And the fact that she steals things, you know, like, in this particular trade, the whole idea of, you know, they're looking for this mysterious 
green uh you House know the, of the, the green mask which is the, the lord of treasure uh direct uh, re- linked to the muse of many a famous 19th century artist yeah and someone that she also looks up to specifically right yes. the, it's like this this um urban legend of this woman who may have been sort of like bent at herself like this just fantastic stuff and then so you have like that on the writing side and then Colleen Coover really manages like when she, look at Bandette's design right so mm-hmm. she she's wearing like black stockings a red uh like t-shirt and a, sh- a shirt and like it her outfit looks homemade mm-hmm. and it just adds so much to sort of the idea that she puts herself together as it is you know like she's really sort of like ground level uh thief and yet she pulls it off with like perfect style and again the way she does certain scenes that you just you don't expect the end you you can sort of see the ending in your mind but you just don't expect it like in page 22 of the at least of the book version where people you know people are being shot by darts and are yeah. kidnapped and you have this character walking around just veiled in shadows and you're thinking well obviously he's the guy shooting the arrows and then he gets shot himself and turns out to be a lady in, in just a coat yeah and it's just you know the way the scene is built like a very slow methodical pace to the end of it it's just this is how you do a comic right yeah it is it's it is constantly fun it's constantly upbeat it's constantly entertaining i don't think that they've had like this has been going on for 13 issues now i read it like on the on a regular basis i, I wait for the collected edition simply because i can i can't wait for the, the one complaint i have from <laughs> that is you know the issues come on like one, one every three months or so yeah it, they, they're not so I, just, which, I, I can't read it like that i'm just sean i can't i can't if i, I don't know issue, why they do have that to wait i would murder someone i don't know why they do that though i'll be honest like well it, because they have other jobs and this is one of those this is a self-owned book right so they have to take it can't be but dark take, horse they is have publishing to take, it. like marvel and dark horse books and i guess to pay the bills and i tobin likes writing some marvel and dc books he seems to have fun doing them i would hope so i mean you know it'd be sad if it wasn't yeah. but but this I, is his best work in terms of writing and I wouldn't say this is Coover's best work simply because I haven't read enough. Unfortunately, a lot of her early stuff is just out of print in an annoying sort of fashion. Yeah, Like Banana Sunday is out of print. Small Favors, which we've talked about in the show before, is out of print. And I don't know why. I, why, why would you do that? She's brilliant. Um, she, you know, her work I don't is beautiful. Know. Speaks for itself. It can't be intentional. I mean, she, she she's high profile enough. She's working for Image now, isn't she? She's I doing don't. Southern Cross. No, 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 no. Oh, that's, that's Becky Cloonan. <laughs> Scratch that. It's Be- not Becky. It's not... Becky Colleen Coover. Yes, yes. Uh, okay. It's actually that's a beautiful combination. I'm, oh, <laughs> you can combine any two creators like Becky Cloonan Coover. Oh um, my! There's even you know even the parts in the story where that should annoy me, like when it ends with what is Bendette's secret. Because oh, up, she until takes now, off the mask. up until now, you know, Bendette was just Bendette. But yeah. in the in the last issue of this collection, they start to hint of, you know, something deeper and mysterious. It should annoy me. It should be like this, oh, you're not doing that moment. But because yeah. the series is so fun and fresh 
you know, I don't care. I was actually surprised when they seem to be building towards a kind of actual arc, right? Like, mm-hmm. there's a scene where she takes off her mask, and the reader doesn't see it, but, like, someone in front of her does, and it's sort of this moment of, oh my god, I can't believe it. It's like, okay, you're clearly building towards some kind of revelation and consistency that maybe, that maybe wasn't, um, evident in the first trade. Like, in the beginning, it did seem like these were mostly standalone stories. Mm-hmm. But now we seem to be going more towards storylines. And I'm okay with that, though, because they really do execute it so well here. And they haven't missed a single beat. So I would say the more the merrier. Bring it on. Yeah, and one one other thing that's important to mention. The supporting cast aren't just there. They aren't just there to adore Bendette. There, there actually are several characters here that I would gladly read their own sto- their own series. I would gladly read a Monsignor series reading by Paul Tobin, even yes. Inspector Belik. You know, <laughs> who's, you know, in most is in most in most stories of that type, he would be the bumbling cop who contributes nothing. But no, he's a very able policeman, and yeah, he, he has would this be super like the, pink, rough the guy from manner the Pink Panther that works because the universe around him is so bright and shiny that he's, you know, constantly cursing and muttering under his breath and just beating everybody who gives him who gives him yeah. trouble, you know, it also seems great. It also makes him endearing in that like like you said, the whole antagonistic relationship that he has with Bandette is the fact that you and you see that very clearly at the end of this novel where she you know He's trying to catch her, and she pats him on the shoulder, and she's like, Hello, uh, just so you know, uh, in that building over there, there are many criminals. Go make many arrests. And he's, and- he's <laughs> puffing on his cigarette with the most... <laughs> the, the most half, I hate her so much, I love her so much, look yeah. possible. And it's genius. It really is. It is a fantastic, fantastic series. I I wish there were more of it, but at the same time, you know, I'm happy every time it comes out, because it's such a positive story it's such it, it doesn't try to overextend itself into like grotesque melodrama or being ridiculous or like going too far over the top that you don't care about anything that happens right like it's very easy to become invested in Bendette because of the way that she treats other people in her circle and the way that she uses like you know the, the people of Paris are willing to help her right mm-hmm. so I think that's it's just fantastic fantastic book yeah so this was been that volume three buy it Highly buy the previous two volumes follow, yes. follow the series it, it, this is as good as it gets right absolutely it is an excellent series and it's fun to end the fun note after a tough week a tough couple of weeks and a tough future i would assume <sighs> yes it is uh, so we'll make was, it Tom. we're yeah, gonna be okay yeah this was the smorgasbord i'm tom shapira and i'm sean edry until next time bon appetit Thank you.